Hi, everybody. Welcome to Agitator. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Mr. Peter Dragovich, a connoisseur of noir, a letterboxed user, definitely one of my favorite Twitter people because he's always just talking about movies. He knows a lot of shit about a lot of shit. And we're talking today about 2002's Graveyard of Honor by the godfather, Takashi Miike. What's up, guys? How's it going? Happy to be here, guys. So, yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for being on the show. As Kelby said, we're talking about Graveyard of Honor, and I have the uh, Tom Mez book, Agitator, open in front of me so that I have all my facts straight about the movie. This one was actually written, or was based on a novel called Jinji no Hakaba by Goro Fujita, and the script was written by the fella uh, Shigenori Takechi, who wrote Agitator. So these are frequent collaborators, Mike and Takechi. And I guess before we dive right into the movie for our listeners, uh, Peter, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, give us your entire life story. You can take up to an hour to do it if you'd like. Yeah, I, I used to do a blog and I reviewed some of your books for a couple, probably like Spine Tingler or something like that. And I haven't done that for about five seven years something like that and just kind of hang out pay attention to the book world and watch movies got really sick of doing uh book reviews and um yeah lately just getting into writing i've got i don't know i got a family i got a job i live in minneapolis and i've, I've lived here my whole life i lived in milwaukee for a while and yeah big fan of extreme asian cinema so I'm happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. So Minneapolis, famously home of Prince, also a big fan of extreme Japanese cinema. I love Minneapolis. I visited once and I thought it was great. I visited a record store that is run by Slug, I think, from Atmosphere. Yeah. He's, he's from he's from that area. It was Rhyme Sayers. That's what it was. It was a Rhyme Sayers record store. And it was really cool. I bought an Aesop Brock album hung out with my I actually I was there for an AWP I think which seems like a relic of a bygone time now I I couldn't see myself going to an AWP anytime soon uh why did you uh why did you stop kind of writing book reviews I think the form of it is like so you know eventually you you build up a certain following and I had the whole that goofy style of writing that got kind of a little stale to me and then also just reviewing books in general there's only so much you can say and then everybody every author wants to chime in if you say anything bad and uh you're and when you're kind of a, a part of the community a little bit that becomes harder to do and plus like when it comes to a book if you finish the fucking book like probably it was good enough like it's kind of like how like you you might and when it comes to crime fiction like there's it's not like there's that much very like you can just that you can talk about like I, I think it's easier for me to get excited to talk about movies than books these days do you feel like you can be more honest when you talk about movies yeah no they're very rarely are the filmmakers gonna jump down my throat and also <laughs> and also i i like them more than most books so i usually am more positive about them anyways right so. right i am so yeah me too here on this oh go ahead kelby go ahead no i was just saying me too i, I like movies better than books 
guess what I was gonna say, I was gonna say the exact same shit. We're all on this wave right now where uh, you know we're writers and just completely unimpressed with what's been going on in books. You know, I mean, I felt like there was a really cool time about 10 years ago where it felt like every book that was coming out was was just really interesting. You know, people were coming out of the velvet uh, and they were writing their asses off because their heroes were Craig Clevenger, Stephen Graham Jones, and Will Christopher Bear. And, you know, there were books by, you know, Jedediah Ayers. And it, I don't know, it just seemed like a really cool time uh, for writing. And now it's kind of like, all right, you know, what do we do now? But like you said, movies, that hasn't happened maybe because there's so many of them and it's it's so easy to watch one you know it only takes like a couple hours but doing this podcast when kelby and i sit down and we figure out what movies we're going to watch it's it's really a matter of calling it down to what we what we actually want to see because it's there's not like there's not a lack of things to watch percent and i think i think part of it just as you know someone who's thing with reviews was primarily crime fiction i think a big part of it was the a lot of the authors kind of shifted over to sci-fi noir or like horror noir and all these goofy hybrid genre things started happening and then um i think you know there's plenty of stuff going on in small press but like it's hard to keep track of it all and what's going to be garbage is it's hard to keep track of and like you said the barrier to entry of a movie is do you have two hours to spend in front of a screen and of course you do so it's, <laughs> why not why not exactly i also think that a lot of people are still dealing with the fallout of 2016. i think when trump got elected i think that a lot of writers uh consider themselves to be left or liberal and when that happened i think everybody's brain just snapped because i can't tell you how many writers i know who have told me that 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 four-year period they were just like well what's what, what am i even doing like what's what's the point because there was so much social kind of upheaval and so many conversations around kind of what you're allowed to do or what you should be doing uh specifically in writing but also in film that you know it just felt like some people expressed to me that they felt like they had their hands tied and I could definitely relate to that so you go back and you watch these movies by Miike and it's like oh just completely uninhibited by these these self-imposed restraints oh yeah 100% the guy uh, ultimately has created a character that is is just pure id and uh and just from the jump he's fucking uh, raping uh twice in a row like within the first 15 minutes and he literally has nothing going on upstairs except need and uh it's it's, it's awesome because yeah you're right that happened it feels like now it's a gamble to show your ass with um like a, something that transgressive because you know, you, God forbid you get kicked off of Twitter by, by the crew, you know, <laughs> like it's, it, <laughs> so it, it, yeah, I feel like that, that got, you're right. That got in people's way too. Kelby, do you want to, do you want to set this up for us? So it's not long enough to be thought of as an epic, I guess, but um, 
it is epic in scope for sure about this sort of decade inner uh, about inner workings of this yakuza group but mostly focused on the uh the main it was riku uh Rikuo. rikio wait Rikuo. I, I just said that it's 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 rikuo <laughs> or ishimatsu ishimatsu yeah ishimatsu is how he's normally referred to in the in the movie yeah right so he's a dishwasher and saves a boss's life and so then it's just automatically like dabbed up with the tea and they're like yeah you're you're in the gang now because you saved the boss and uh but he's a psychopath he's like like peter said straight id he's raping and murdering and the whole movie is sort of about his shattering of this group who's like torn between dealing with him as a problem and uh mainly his brother who is like well this this is my brother and i've got to like keep him alive and shit and it's also kind of about him and his uh common law wife their strange relationship because she's kind of she has several opportunities to leave and she's like she keeps coming back to him but he is absolutely a piece of shit to her and yes book ended by his prison uh stint after getting in this awesome shootout which we can get to talking about more but uh he, he's the yakuza demon uh, that's what this movie is absolutely yeah no he basically as kelby said he saves a boss from uh, an assassination attempt and the way that he does it is so casual. He's he's washing dishes and then he walks over and just beats this guy with a chair and then goes back to what he was doing. But that somehow, I guess if you save a Yakuza boss's life, you become the head of, of your own little sub family. Yakuza groups are split off into you know, major families and then sub gangs or groups, right? And so he gets two little henchmen and he's, you know, kind of living it up. And I think the most striking thing, and I'll turn over to Peter, but I think the most striking thing about the movie's beginning is that he uh, sees a waitress that he kind of likes and invites her to a karaoke uh, room to sing. And when she comes in, he's doing this, like, uh, like this this throat sound uh, that I found uh, very compelling. Wait, before I continue, by the way, fun fact, the assassin at the very beginning is Mike. He did the same thing in uh, Agitator. He always plays like the, the crazy assassin when these gangster movies uh, call for one, which they frequently do. Anyhow, so he's in the, the karaoke bar and... Uh, he just kind of very straightforwardly rapes this woman. He kind of starts putting food into her mouth and then just goes for it. And oddly enough, she becomes his girlfriend, uh, which is sort of a, I'll ask Peter about this, and it might be kind of an awkward question because it's about rape, but this <laughs> seems to be kind of like a noir thing, right? Like the, the assertive man or whatever, but kind of taken to 
an absurd extreme. Well, yeah, it's also, I mean, it, you can see it in, um, I believe it's High Plains Drifter, the Eastwood movie. Yeah, like they, that's right. They, they, like there's a lot of, uh, and Straw Dogs, a peck and paw, like there's a lot of, you know, raper till she loves it kind of shit going on in the 70s, especially. And uh, Fukusaku, the guy who made the original um, uh, version of Graveyard of Honor, like he's got that type of shit in in a lot of his gangster movies, his Yakuza movies of the 70s. And like, I think with this one, like she's not down with it, like really even through the prison stint. And she's not, doesn't even really seem that down with him until uh, he punches her boss in the face um, at the restaurant. And then yeah. from, th from there, she's making out with him in the car. And then, uh, and then they're doing heroin together. And she's like blissing out like nobody's business. But yeah, I do think that the, the rape thing is also, I've heard people talk about in like Japanese culture that like, there's like some sort of old fashioned ideas of like, there needs to initially be rape because women aren't supposed to have promiscuous sex in general, and then they can enjoy it after that point. Don't I can't state the study or, or uh, any of such a claim, uh, but I, I guess I decided to say that no microphone. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'll just say I'll just say that it's definitely been true in my experience. <laughs> in your tours of Japan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, but you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't want you to feel awkward because I think you're dead on. I think that when you look at uh, paintings that go back as far as the fisherman's wife, um, there is a kind of a difference in roles in in Japanese sexuality. A friend of mine explained this to me. He was really into hentai, and so I thought that was weird. And he was explaining, he's like, "No, no, no, it's it's different over there. Like this is this is how they enjoy it." So, I am definitively speaking for all Japanese women. <laughs> actually, rape is good. Um, no, but like, but you're right. I mean, it. it <laughs> Kelly's cracking up. I mean, I don't know. I I respect cultural differences. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Yeah, we're not here to judge. A, a lot like this, uh, a lot like this movie, not in the way that, I mean, these characters become very easy to judge. It's not one of those, like, uh, uh, it's presenting these characters without judgment, like just, you know, showing the complexity, like, I'm, it's showing them doing absolutely horrendous shit. But it's played, like, the cinematography has that that like cinema verite or however you say that the the french mm -hmm. for for um you know basically like the the sort of documentary style yeah uh, where it's always moving shakily from like honestly from like one perfect angle to another somehow even though it's like shaken around and like just sort of treated as this like workmanlike approach to capturing everything it this movie is like full of really great shots there's constant movement on the screen like we're being pulled along by the ear through the whole thing and it's like i don't know i, I just love how it's presented in this way of just like just showing it to you and that's it like i i didn't know how to feel in the beginning because a lot of mike's stuff has like a fun vibe to it 
as crazy as it gets and this was like it became fun indulging in the like just wild shit that he was doing but i didn't know what to feel and i loved that because you know i don't like being told what to what i'm supposed to think so our protagonist decides that he is going to do a job for the boss there's a another fella who owes a lot of gambling debts so he's sent out to teach this guy a lesson and he goes to a nice little gambling den finds him uh stabs the shit out of him blood just goes everywhere that's when i remember that i was really in a miike movie when the the blood started coming out of this guy stabs him a whole bunch and then wanders out of the gambling den into the streets of uh kabukicho which is where uh, pretty much where Miike shoots almost all of his Yakuza films. And what's interesting about that is you'll notice in that scene that the camera is pretty far away from him. So they hid the whole crew and just sent him out there jackass style covered in blood to see if they could get any reactions from people. And the most hilarious thing about that, if you'll remember the scene, nobody bats an eye. Everybody just <laughs> walks past him. Like one person turns their head but nobody else seems to give a shit that this man covered in fake blood is stumbling around on the street. Yeah, I saw in another street scene uh, a kid look right at the camera, and I was like, oh, yeah, they, they must have just stole some fucking street shots. They did that. We did a, a movie called 964 Pinocchio a few weeks back, and they did that as well, where they had their character who's covered in blood and makeup uh, run around the streets of Shinjuku, with an enormous fake uh, steel pyramid being dragged behind him. And you just see crowds screaming and trying to escape from this insane looking person. But I like that. I like when we get a little bit of reality in with the, with the movie. Yeah. It doesn't take you too far out. It's pretty solid. And like, yeah, but, but they probably could have even done the holdup scene with the two junkies, the dealers. Like, yeah. yeah. That entirely positive. He's being flagrant with the gun on them as well, uh, and like not being subtle at all. So yeah, yeah I, I, was thinking that. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, "Holy shit!" Like, does nobody? Does everybody just mind their their own business? You guys ever see the Tom Green uh, where he goes to Japan? Y'all remember that? Probably twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a part where he's in the subway and everybody is silent. It's they're packed in like sardines, but nobody's speaking. And Tom Green's in the middle of the car and he just starts yelling out like, does anybody want some cheese? Can I get a hey oh? Can I get a <laughs> everybody's just dead silent? And they're looking, and one guy goes up to him and goes, Shut up. Very loud. <laughs> <laughs> so again, cultural differences, right? Like, you know, they yeah. to themselves. Yeah. I bet in Minneapolis, like in certain parts of the city, you'd everybody keep their head down as well. I mean, we're, uh, the Minnesota thing, uh, you know, we don't, we'll just smile at you nice, uh, politely and, and hurry on past. That's <laughs> yeah. the way to do it. That's Oklahoma too. Yeah, everybody just minds their own business because everybody here has a gun. So you just don't say anything. It keeps everybody polite. What happens after that in this movie? Um, he goes to jail. Oh, yeah. He, I was going to say he goes to jail and then uh, is immediately seemingly assaulted uh, by 
by the boss who has a toothache um and when he and then you he blows up on some other lieutenants and he's in a relationship with chico at that point and then from there on, we're basically just in the downward spiral as he just fucks his life up like left and right and is on a lamb for the rest of the movie yeah yeah so he basically he gets out of jail and immediately commits rape again which uh, Tom Mess in his book Agitator has a very interesting take on. I will quote it at length. The scene seems to only confirm his nature as a rapist, perhaps even throwing the kiss he gave Chico before going to jail into dubious light. But in fact, his raping of the waitress is a way to protect Chico. When he returns to her later that night, he has already exercised his demons. He finds Chico sleeping at the table covered with another festive dinner, she wakes up and starts to apologize, blah, 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 pins her to the refrigerator. Anyway, Tom Mess's point is that when he rapes the waitress, he's actually it's actually an act of love towards his lady friend. I thought that was an interesting take. I wonder if you guys had any, any thoughts about that. So you think he just goes down on her uh, in the kitchen then and calls her a night? Or... I think so, yeah. I think he does a little, I think he does a little service, you know, a little service for his lady. You know, she cooked him food. She sure did. <laughs> it's usually what you do. It's just, it's just fair. It's like, oh, you made me ramen noodles? Take those pants off. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, want, I want some dessert now. <laughs> <laughs> I could see Kelby doing that shit and be like, damn. Come on, girl. Yeah, of course. That's just common courtesy. You know, I'm a yeah. Southern gentleman. There's, uh, there's some other stuff in this book about how Graveyard of Honor is a metaphor for the, the economic bubble bursting in Japan. Uh, essentially, our hero's uh, meteoric rise and then extreme fall from grace is supposed to mimic all of that. And then, you know, at the end, when he's sort of draped in the, the Japanese flag, it's like a not so subtle. Uh, that's when I knew some symbolism was happening in this movie. I was like, wait a minute. Is this about something else? The most powerful part for me is the friendship with Imamura, who they're like, it seems like the couple of times where Ishimatsu is like almost a happy guy is the glimpse we get of him in prison, like at the garden with Imamura. And then like when he gets heroin, uh, he has some, he has a good time. Uh, as well um, but then like the the real crux of the movie is I think kind of Imamura becomes the actual sympathetic character because he is an actual man of honor who's trying to do right by a brother and a, a guy who just doesn't deserve his devotion <laughs> whatsoever and he just keeps getting it thrown back in his face over and over you know he sticks his neck out like in a major way even goes to his own godfather and and takes responsibility for him and he gets you know stabbed in the gut as a as a thank you after slipping in another man's shit and uh I, yeah the, i thought that that for as nihilistic as the movie is i i, I do think like the memory stuff is like genuinely like upsetting and powerful when when he's murdered and even that little sketch of his wife begging for mercy 
for her husband is like like really pretty dire stuff <laughs> and uh, emotionally it was emotionally affecting I love how it's like also broad daylight and then they, they start playing that smooth jazz the first stabbing uh, of Imamura there's the other guy hanging out there who he like comes to try and defend him and then he stabs the shit out of him and they go outside and into the snow and there's you know the blood geysering over the snow and that bright sunlight and the and the like handheld camera is just like it's an incredible we get these like incredibly uh juxtaposed like beautiful scenes which is something Mike does well and does in other stuff but like not common place for him i don't think to be so like sort of poetic with that stuff well and he i think the style of action that he does in this is um a, another nod to uh fukasaku uh who did it see you saw battle royale right at some point in your lives yeah, like th yeah. that that was like his like final uh movie i believe maybe he did i think his son did part two um and so he, i think he like had freshly died when when he made when mike made this movie and fukasaku's whole thing with his 70s um gangster movies is kind of like the documentary style camera work even though like where everything is super frantic but really clear at the same time and a lot of that like just people flailing around and in, insane physicality and just like mayhem but his and also a really crazy amount of plot to the stories which i think this uh movie has a, a solider pretty labyrinthine but it's easier to follow i think than most fukasaku uh movies uh because there's usually just so many goddamn gangsters on the screen to follow and yeah. this one you're able to pretty much take in who's who even though there's quite a few characters um but yeah he i think that whole i think he's kind of because it doesn't it doesn't look like some of his like wackier violence it's uh, more hard hitting as does the extremeness of the amount of blood and stuff um i mean when he fucking kills himself it's like he jumped in a kiddie pool of, of blood and um uh and which is a rip straight from the fukasaku movie too yeah i think that might be part of uh the style but i think it looks so good i think i i wish he'd do more more of it because i really think just he, he really reaches a nice uh melding of of kind of his i'm gonna be an adult now mode with his like i'm gonna fuck with you mode in this movie that i think is just a beautiful balance that's interesting in terms of where these styles come from i'm not very familiar with fukusaku's work or really very many japanese films of that time i think i've seen i've seen kwaidan and i've seen pale flower which I think was 1964, so it was a little bit oh, earlier, yeah. But um, now that you mention all that, that probably has something to do with how red the blood is too, because I thought that that was a bit of a throwback. You, you're normally in 70s movies, you see that really kind of cherry red blood instead of the the kind of darker stuff. So I guess um, 
a lot of the homage in this movie was probably completely lost on me. Although I do own now, I own the Fukusaku version. Uh, so I will go back and watch that eventually. It's just, you know, like with a kid, you're like, I got, I got one movie a week in me, right? <laughs> and well, one, one grown up movie, I watched Aladdin today. So it's not, my film diet is not completely uh, scarce. There, there's some stuff in there, but um, the geyser of blood at the end, it, it kind of disappoints me that it was an homage because it felt like such a Mike touch to have him explode in a geyser of blood like that but it doesn't take away from how amazing and powerful that image is it's just this fucking explosion when he when he splats and part of me because it is a Miike movie and this is what's so interesting about filmmakers who are willing to do wild shit that's out of left field it wouldn't have surprised me if he somehow survived, right? I was actually wondering. I was like, is he going to actually just like splat and then get up and just stumble off? But I mean, I think that's the beauty of his movies. Yeah, the I just watched. I watched uh, over the last month or two. I've been watching a lot of Fukusaku, and I just watched um, the Fukusaku one earlier today, and uh, the like some key beats are all there um it's more based on the actual real story of the real gangster and it's all and instead of it being about the uh, late 80s recession it's all set during the post-world war ii era um very pointedly and uh but there's one thing in it that i'm really surprised uh Mika didn't find space for there's a part where he um to freak out the other gangsters he uh, starts eating the cremains of uh, Chico in front of him, and like just like crunching on like uh, little like charred bone bits in in front of uh, the council members, and I'm like I was kind of I was kind of shocked that he didn't uh, give he didn't want to recreate that out of c- certain key scenes that he also took a stab at basically. That would have been that would have been perfect. I'm so, I too am completely shocked because that seems like something that Nikkei wouldn't be able to resist. Rare moment of restraint from Takashi Nikkei. <laughs> well, I, he seems like somebody who comes at this shit so innocently, like he's not trying to uh, shock. So that also does kind of make sense that like some of the really wild, like gnarly shit would just fly by him. And he'd be like, ah, I don't know. I can't fit it in here. I like that you said that. And I think that that hits on what makes his movies so disturbing. When you watch, um, I don't know, for whatever reason this movie popped into my head. But when you turn on Way of the Gun, there's that opening scene where Sarah Silverman is like swearing at Benicio and uh, what was it? Ryan Philippi, I think is the other guy. Yeah, he's, he's going he's gonna to go over there and fuck Stutter Head. Yeah, he's gonna go fuck starter head right and he's like my, <laughs> my boyfriend's gonna stomp your pussy dick into the fucking dirt whatever you know so like when when you see that because of the intensity of the language it kind of it primes you to be watching something gritty i watched sicario and sicario 2 the other day uh which i loved i thought both of them were really good but like those movies also prime you because you know, they go down into Juarez and there's headless bodies strung up by their feet on the highway overpass. And, you know, there's like a real sense that this is like a gritty movie, right? It's, it's supposed to be intense. So in Graveyard of Honor, 
you do have those moments, right? I mean, you have the the aforementioned rape in the karaoke bar, but it is, but it's restrained in its own way because Miike does cut away from that scene. You you see Ishimatsu walk out and wipe the blood off of his fingers on the the out of order sign, and uh, the violence is also extreme. But you know, but we see we see it all. We've seen that all before, right? And it's right. and it's, but like. Then you get to the scene where Ishimatsu wants to escape from jail, which he does by putting milk in a Tupperware container and waiting for it to curdle, which is by far, I'm not exaggerating when I say that's one of the most disgusting scenes I've ever seen in film history. When he's drinking it and there's little like egg yolk yellows in there, some kind of horrific bacteria that's just festering. And then he, he gets taken to the hospital and he escapes and he steals a garbage truck and goes to Imamura's house. Uh, and as he's climbing up the stairs, he begins to shit his pants, but it's this comical geyser of diarrhea shooting out the bottom of his pant leg. And it's that extreme, it's the extreme nature of, of that scene that's put into an otherwise, I would argue, pretty standardly violent gangster movie that elevates Miike, right? Like, you just, you never know. Uh, Kelby and I talked about this before when we were reviewing Dead or Alive. Have you seen that one, Peter? Yeah. So when we were talking about Dead or Alive, it's got the classic opening 10 minute montage where the guy gets shotgunned and, you know, ramen noodles spray all over the screen. Right, right. Uh, But there's a quieter scene a little bit after that where uh, the cop is going to visit his informant and the informant is shooting like dog porn with this woman and this woman's like she's naked she's on all fours and he's getting the dog geared up to do its thing and at the time I told uh, Kelby it's like because it's a Miike movie you, you're not sure if he's actually going to show like it feels very uncomfortable like he's about to show you something that you can never come back from well, I think what I think part of the other Mike touch is because yeah, we have seen a lot of this type of of uh, level of violence, and we and we've seen more graphic rape and other uh, than this in other places. But I do think that the level of of gnarliness of uh, Ishimatsu is kind of a whole other level i do think that he could have had like a yakuza movie that but every you know other college student in 2004 would have on their dorm like walls and shit but i i do think that it's he's a particularly repugnant character like i think the and I, and that's part of what what made me you know really stand up watching the movie is how you know, far they go with just making him unapologetically like just a demon, like you said. And, you know, it reminded me of hearing in uh, college about that the original screenplay of Taxi Driver, all the characters, you know, because Bickle is a racist in the film, like whenever he looks at uh, black characters, there's a slowdown effect where you can tell he just simmering hates him and like i i guess in the original screenplay like sport and all the people at the uh bordello uh were black and like 
I don't think people would have Travis Bickle uh, posters and shit if he was yeah. just that wildly racist. It'd be, it would be, uh, I think it would probably still be a legendary movie, but it'd just be harder to, you know, defend uh, to, uh, uh, you know, a mainstream audience because your character is that level of just repulsive. Yeah. Yeah, I have two questions. Number one is, is Ishimatsu as bad in the original? And two, can you think of a more uh, vile protagonist than this one? Because I, I, I couldn't. I was I was not having a good time at some point in this movie. When you mentioned when he stabs uh, his sworn brother, <coughs> excuse me, in the in the gut and then shoots him and you know, his wife is begging for mercy and he's just got that that kind of slacked blank face that he has, right? Right. I, I can't think of anybody who is more kind of hateable that we're supposed to spend two hours and ten minutes with. Um, I would... I think uh, what springs to mind is maybe... Um, the, the, you ever seen Naked, the Mike Lee movie? Yeah. Yeah, that dude, like, he opens a movie with a rape, and then he's he just says disgusting things and demoralizing things to everyone in his hyper-literate way to to every single... Like, that guy is, is pretty unabashedly... And, and, but you, at the same time, you're fascinated uh, and want to follow the movie with him. But that, I think, is one of the more... Uh, disgusting in a different way like that's a disgusting guy who could you know live the apartment up from you you know <laughs> like uh, instead of a crazy Yakuza killer but yeah like that type of of nasty but but I, I don't know I, I think there's probably a certain amount of people who who do and do like that character um, and where I don't think there's much to enjoy other than uh, other than when he knocks that guy in the head with a gun at the casino, <laughs> like he's pretty funny sometimes. But um, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, he's yeah. pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean the the knocking the guy in the head in the casino, the punching the madam at the um, escort hotel, whatever that thing is. All of those, if if Clint Eastwood had done them, it would be like, oh, there he goes. There's Clint. He's taking, he's taking the barn to teach her some manners. What you gotta do when you're the literal devil. I started feeling like the movie had some levels of empathy, like whenever the more of the brotherly stuff unravels. And I started actually like seeing that because he he feels so otherworldly. Um, in some ways, like he, like he is a demon, uh, and not demon possessed because he rarely shows any kind of humanity. It's like this dude is the fucking devil. But when they introduced the whole like brotherly angle, I uh, I was like, oh shit, I I, I know this guy because I, I started relating a little bit with a, a cousin of mine who's hopefully locked up forever so I don't end up like in Amara. And it became more fascinating to me then to see this like, this person whose biggest flaw is that is their d 
desire right like their their desire is all fucked up and so the like the whole there's no there's no saving grace for someone like that which it gave it a real somber like feel to me when i started thinking about it that way how he's like so i had like a level of sympathy even though i really hate him (laughs) it's like i don't it, it it's like man that that must suck to like exist as somebody who just wants to sabotage basically unprovoked by anything or unwarranted just that's your nature well i mean think about most of the movie like this they'd usually give the guy um a goal like he's got to raise you know 15 million then he can you know escape to his you know uncle's place in the philippines or whatever the hell and here like he's got no options and he's just hanging out at the safe house and uh and shooting up and uh and crawling around on the floor amongst his porno mags and uh shooting up at the ceiling while listening to music which is the only time he uh because he's a complete misanthrope the only time he we get any idea of what he does for fun is uh is that scene he's got his metal he's got his uh, like thrashing fucking music and his porno mags and uh like other than that like because even in the karaoke scene he's not listening to music he's just making stupid sounds into the microphone (laughs) and which he also makes the same sound the first time he shoots up in the can uh he he does the same kind of drone uh at that moment too um but uh but yeah like that's like he they don't they don't even give him the the usual you know we got to catch this plane uh stakes it's just when he and he's not even driven necessarily by revenge very hard he's it's just like he just kind of wanders into like getting get back against imamura for that shitty cop who who doesn't clarify his statement uh very well um which i like that part of it too was um that right hand man of imamura uh oshida with the glasses and a streak in his hair uh that guy like in he also in a, in a regular movie he'd be like an asshole but like really he's trying to do what imamura can he's trying to just save him uh this hassle and instead it ends up getting him killed and uh and Oshida's nowhere around for for that either so he, he just kind of fucks everything up uh even though he, he's trying to help yeah yeah exactly that scene where he's riding around on the floor high as balls and he's like he's scooting around and he's taking all of his secret guns out of their location and then firing them into the ceiling it was one of the best scenes i've ever seen in a movie oh 100 could not take my eyes off that while it was happening i was like i want everything to just be this can we just watch him as a as a junkie just go just you know going outside and doing this because that that would be some real maybe some real street theater you just started shooting people on the street 
<laughs> I think they have a name for that, but I can't remember what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was probably the highlight of the movie for me. And he just he just nailed it. Like this guy is was just kind of incredible. Like his ability to transmit like the subtlest emotions when Chico shows up when he gets out of jail and she shows up it's if you watch his face it's just like this little hint that he's pleased to see her right yeah he, it really really quick goes away because he ha- he's got to be you know he's got to be cool for his buddies um but yeah no I just like it's one of those roles where you couldn't see it in anybody else because I don't know there's just something about his face he looks I don't know he just looks like a little demon <laughs> he's, he's got a little demonic look to him he's also got uh, the most insane physicality I mean he just throws himself around uh, like just that scene where he's leaving Imamura's like cabin and he's just slipping around on the ice all fucked up um, uh, it just looked painful he, he got like hardly any clothes on and he just smashing himself into the ice like I, that there's no there's no CGI for that. That's just a dude fucking and it's like not like the most necessary scene either. It's just like awesome physicality of an actor just just fumbling around outside. Now what did you guys think about uh I'll ask Kelby this first. What did you think about the fact that he he goes back to kill Imamura? I thought that was an interesting choice that he didn't just kill him at first right like he stabs him and then he goes and gets high with his girlfriend or his common-law wife i should say and then he goes back and finishes the job and there's really no no development between those two scenes it's just kind of you know mmr is being fed uh some some rice soup by his lady friend and then and then he's just back it took me by surprise because i was like oh i, I thought they kept him alive for a reason but I'm curious as to y'all's thoughts about that. I was riding that uh, relating wave at that time and was like, yep, that's why I've got to move if I find out my my cousin gets out of prison. Because it just seems like something he do. It's like, oh, he's still alive? Shit, I need to go kill that motherfucker. Oh, yeah. but yeah. Well, but it, it it is this odd, like, because uh, because it's not this like passionate seeking of revenge it's sort of just a uh an impulse like an itch that he has to scratch yeah no, they, that also what transpires between those two different scenes is uh that awesome scene of him driving the car while uh chico flips out and, like i don't know if she like yanks some hair out of her scalp or or what but like you know then they start bleeding all over the windshield uh like and that's like and and that's like the scene that have precedes it so he's just like just gets fucking loaded and and then oh we're taking a drive to go <laughs> kill my bro i guess is, is how i but it's daytime i suppose when he goes in but yeah that that's the scene right before it yeah i i, I felt like in the, I thought it because he's like still clearly sick when uh, uh, he has the initial confrontation. Um, I just thought, but I just thought he wasn't up to the task um, after wrestling in the snow with dude. Um, 
and then he just took a little heroin break and and got it done um and that and that well in that point like also like the way he leaves that fucking uh he like ninjas out the window uh and then they had a completely different squat um where more bad guys just show up uh which i guess we're supposed to assume maybe some of Emma Murray's guys like followed them there because they're on them right away and uh and then she's OD'd by then mm-hmm. yeah which I didn't know I thought she was just nodding I saw girls like that all the time on the bus in Portland where they kind of have that that nod to them and you're like oh boy somebody uh somebody took a little bit too much before they decided to to ride the, the bus today um but I thought that was uh an interesting parallel because he had just gotten done murdering Imamura in front of his wife and then right. comes back and his wife is dad. I thought that was a nice symmetry there. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I don't, you know, I think you guys have good takes on that. I think practically it does make sense that he needs to sort of gas up the tank before he goes back for, for the second one. But it, it just, it is an interesting, I could see that being cut is what I'm saying, right? Like if, if the movie was being made and you had Netflix suits or something, they would be like, well, why, why don't we just smoosh those two things together? Um, but it's just because he didn't want to, you know, just because the he wanted to show, I guess you he would have wanted to fit in a few more uh, Chaco scenes before she ODs, right? Because without that, she would just be dead. And right. there would be no, no real... Uh, no scenes of them like in bed rolling around being high and so i i fucking i hate needles and i hate drug movies <laughs> so every time that they were shooting up i was i was cringing during this movie i liked it I, lo- I loved it in fact but it was just not a fun experience at some points i was like i'm not i'm straight up not having a good time but you know whatever. Well, there's some pretty legendary uh heroin shit in here like when he is with all the white hookers and he's holding a gun on the dude with the needle still on his arm and then he yeah. and then he puts it down to finish <laughs> plunging um yeah i think i think that's it i think you know and plus if you're gonna kill the guy who betrayed you you want to get high first so he had to steal those those dudes works and uh and go get laid before he got the ultimate revenge i guess I love how like the whole movie is kind of like like that that's the one that sticks out as the most like wait what the fuck but the whole movie has this pace to it that is only concerned with showing you what it wants to it's it's like really only concerned with keeping the interesting stuff on on camera and just straight cutting there's no like artistic like fades or like symbolic transitions to the it's just like here's the scene boom here's the next scene boom here's the next scene and it's like at one point it just jumps and it's like yeah so eight years later that's one of the things i love most about mike is his like scene by scene approach because no matter what is happening there's going to be something interesting in there i think one of the most consistent things about this movie like scene to scene was the production design which was like crazy cluttered lived in like just bottles everywhere and fucking 
decor toppling over like everything just looked so busy and like real like populated well yeah he's got that uh i like that the squat uh that they're at initially that imamura you know abandons him i hate that part where he's he complains like he just left me out there in no man's land it's like did he give you a place to stay <laughs> what what more do you want but uh he uh it's like they say like a family uh just left out of there and there's like baby toys and uh stuff on the walls and meanwhile he just like just liquor bottles and beer cans and uh and just heroin and and uh porno mags just event he makes a place his own uh even though uh he's got a little domesticity going on with uh chico bringing over lunch and shit yeah i love that set yeah there's some good in mike's movies and also in uh toshi out of toyota's uh porno star i think has the all-timer yakuza hangout which is this cluttered office building with shelves that it looks like he picked up at like Crate and Barrel or something like that. <laughs> in all these movies, one thing that I've noticed is when you watch American gangster movies, they focus a lot on the opulence and the wealth and being badass. But in most Yakuza movies that I see, it's real middle management level. Yeah. Agitator, this one, the a porno star, all these movies, it's like these guys are in tiny little offices in these green tinted dingy stairwells with small little doors that lead into rooms that are full of cigar smoke and people just kind of hanging out and talking about what they're going to do next. It's it's very uh, unglamorous for the most part. seems like a sort of a hellish existence. Well, yeah, and that, that partially uh, probably to exemplify the the recession uh, that they're going through culturally too. Um, yeah, I think that the movie, like Kelby was saying earlier about, you know, we're just showing you the rad bits. And that's, I think what, what is wild about the movie is it's like pretty excellent uh, storytelling, like a really cool plot. Uh, like the fact that you don't find out for like 20 minutes what the 10 million first off we don't find out why he was at the boss's uh, office until after he fucks everything up and then you find out only later after that what the 10 million yen is for which is you know to buy Chico's uh, you know however that place works um, and uh, and then just like how it's got all, all these nice uh, subtle touches to a, like a pretty nicely complicated lots of incident uh, kind of story but ultimately it's a character study of a guy where there's nothing there to study <laughs> like he's just like um, he's, there's there's not anything going on there it's just a guy who's who's getting his at all time uh, and is really at his, his sweetest when uh, he He's got a little H in his veins, and and his lady in his bed. Yeah, I, I fuck with that. <laughs> that that whole like, I, I love that as a storytelling technique. It's like because I can imagine writing this story like if it if it were in prose form, and 
go in like if you went beat by beat then it would be like you'd be like why is he what the fuck is going on now it, but you like find out gradually or just like it's it's really serving the order of whatever has the best rhythm to it honestly and i fuck with that it's got great pacing i am curious um peter about your uh, history with Mike films um which ones are your favorites which ones you've seen um so that's a, i know it's a really broad question but that's that's what's what i got man right <laughs> um yeah he was uh i, I remember uh i'm 38 so he was a pretty big deal uh when i was in college uh as a film nerd um he so I, like i saw like katakuris and itchy the killer and visitor q and all that then and then i've just kind of kept up with um most of him uh since then i haven't um seen all of his a lot of his 90s ones are kind of a, a blind spot for me that i gotta figure out um I also we I have a actual old style video store uh, real close to my house, and they and they and they do like they have the extreme Asian cinema section like you're living in 1999, and uh, so I I I give them my money uh, to take advantage of that kind of stuff. So I've been I, I got I got more to go for sure, um, but yeah I think this one because I. Like, you know, I remember the, everybody was excited about 13 Assassins, um, mm-hmm. his kind of Kurosawa uh, riff. And I remember watching that and, and being like, man, this is, this is like a, him doing a, a Spielberg fucking movie. Um, but you, at this, but at the same time, you're like, they're swinging that sword an awful lot, but I'm not seeing a lot of blood here either mm-hmm. and, and and being disappointed by it and i feel like like this movie is kind of like the the happy medium that i want between like that movie and like uh you know katakuris or some shit to goofy shit like that like this is kind of like probably the sweet spot in terms of of i don't know i i'm I'm open to be, there being a movie I like more, but I don't know. This is like a pretty excellent crime movie and uh, got just enough nutty shit and inspired shit going on that um, it, it's the one to be topped for me, I think. Oh, wow. Wow, so you'd say you would put this on top as far as game movies go? I think so. I mean, other than, I don't know, you can't deny it to the killer and stuff or like, the, the the gold standards but like i don't know i watched this last night and then uh i watched it this afternoon again I, was, I thought that would be a chore and it really wasn't <laughs> so like and i just watched it a couple months ago for the first time so it's uh it's been fun to talk about well good excellent Yo, you got anything to say before we wrap it up here I have a fun quote that I found uh, in doing some research. The uh, so Noboru Ando, who 
plays a character in the original in the Fukusaku version. He was a yakuza before he became an actor, and I found this badass quote from him that feels like it encapsulates a lot of what's going on in these type of yakuza movies, where he says in Japanese the only difference between yakuza and yakusha, which means actor, is one hiragana character. All yakuza have to be actors to survive. It's fucking cool. What do you think that means? Well, it's sort of like I, f- I felt that resonate on like the sort of uh, the sort of like gangster rap culture where you f- like the the ones who start off cooking crack and rise up and everything and like in the yakuza movies you see it kind of in like the way that they wear their suits like mm-hmm. there, there's always like these badass suits that they're rocking but like some of them they look like little kids playing pretend like they haven't mm-hmm. filled it out yet and that seems to be like a a, a recurring theme and in, in yakuza flicks and it's in this one as well is that like sort of pretending to be what you're trying to be until that's what you become mm. on the actor note too that guy from porno star was a the guy with the shiny beautiful long hair he was a he was a yakuza um there's actually another name for it that's slipping my mind in japanese but it's the like the street punk version it's like the entry level yakuza before you get tatted but that's interesting that there's a yeah there is this level of well i mean hip-hop has that just shot through right like this idea of authenticity uh being so important to to the music that you make and it's really a roll of the dice whether somebody's completely faking or actually did that that shit you know what i mean like there's uh who's the guy the black mafia what what are, what are they called anyway they were like the real deal you know and the way that some rappers get uh, the ability to afford all the features and production and everything that goes into making a mixtape or a rap album is legitimately through dope dealing. And then you get other people who are, you know, trust fund kids. And but nobody really cares, right? On the inside, nobody really cares. But it's it's us who get fooled by it. But that's a tangent. Yeah, uh, Yakuza. I, I get. I think I get the quote now because it's saying like Yakuzas are playing at being tough. Uh, until they like faking it until they make it is that it yeah yeah basically yeah that baby brain dude i'm fucking really <laughs> like, i'm barely i'm barely hanging on i appreciate you guys humoring me well peter thank you very much appreciate your time and uh we'll come back maybe we'll watch the ley lines or something like that sounds good to me thanks for having me guys oh yeah absolutely been a pleasure Thank you.